Hybrid Pod, a podcast exploring conversations of critical digital pedagogy, listening for ways to empower students and champion learning. It's the oral side of hybrid pedagogy, a digital journal of learning, teaching, and technology. I'm Chris Friend from St. Leo University. While collecting interviews for the first two episodes of this podcast, I started several different conversations about listening to students and about compassion and integrity. Many of those conversations shifted to how teachers can understand what students are learning. In other words, without setting out to, we ended up talking about assessment. It's an important topic that is particularly fraught in critical pedagogy circles and with today's push for standardization. The traditional take on assessment positions the teacher or the state as the one with all the answers and asks students to prove that they can figure out what the testers want them to know. Think of AP exams, SATs, ACTs, GREs, and loads of other acronym-derived test names, notably including statewide benchmark testing made widespread in America by No Child Left Behind legislation from 2001. In short, there's significant inertia behind standardized assessment that critical pedagogy needs to address if it's going to reform traditional education. In this episode of Hybrid Pod, We'll revisit the assessment-focused parts of previous conversations that didn't make it on the air, and I'll bring a new voice into the conversation to think of assessment from a broader perspective. We'll look at assessment in music classes and writing classes, classrooms of composition and classrooms of compassion. We'll find ways of assessing students that prioritize their abilities and new experiences over their ability to do exactly what everyone else has done before them. We'll ask how we can give students greater authority in the assessment process, and we'll even address the idea of standards within the context of critical digital pedagogy. I actually started thinking about assessment while producing the first episode of Hybrid Pod, when I was talking with Jonathan Searcy about how he uses text-to-speech software to be more focused on student work when he grades, giving them more of his attention. To Jonathan, using audio as he reads allows him to more faithfully respond to student writing. He said that assessing student writing should be a matter of understanding the students and of really listening to the results of their labors. We've also heard from Chris Schaffer before. I'm Chris Schaffer. I'm instructor of music theory at CU Boulder College of Music. And he uses assessments as an opportunity to build stronger relationships with students and to show them that time spent in office hours can actually be beneficial. Um, I found my first semester here in lieu of a final paper or a final exam, I had them do a final oral exam in my office with uh, in partners, and that was such a great opportunity to hear their voice. Whatever you know, you've you've come up with whatever you found in this piece of music, and then the other fifteen, I'm going to ask you questions. And so it was an opportunity for me to say, okay, we've got this rubric, and if you nail all that in your five minutes, um, then we can just talk about this piece. And it'll be cool. And if not, I can ask you questions to clarify things or kind of it'll give you an opportunity to say, oh, I, I misunderstood the, the directions. <laughs> and so I, they can kind of work out an answer on the spot. And, and so it was, you know, they came in really stressed and came out really relaxed and, and actually with better grades. And that kind of laid the foundation in some cases for those kind of uh, relationships because students, a, a lot of them brought in you know, a, a piece of music that had a deeply personal connection to them. And so that came out as they were describing it. And, and so it was nice to have that opportunity one-on-one -on -one to get to know them a little bit, you know, beyond the, the academic side of things. Asking students to think through things on the spot in an instructor's office sounds intimidating. Mostly, it asks students to be willing to experiment and take risks while being observed. If our students are afraid to try new things in our classes, they'll miss opportunities to learn from those experiences. 
Chris has designed assessment in his music theory classes around those opportunities for risk-taking. Yeah, a system of standards-based assessment where they lay out a number of objectives, usually like one to two dozen objectives for the term for a class, and say, these are the objectives you have to meet. I give them multiple opportunities to do it and a deadline by which it needs to be done. So there's usually some room for them to make mistakes for the early assignments to be practiced, even though they're graded. And then if by the end of that unit of study, they've met the standards, then they're good. And usually what what this leads to is, is what used to be a C student in kind of a everything counts average it all together in some kind of weird formula way. Those students are either students who really didn't learn the material the way they should have, but they played the game and got the points. And also students who were just killing it by the end, but it took them a while. And so they were penalized by early misunderstandings. This kind of a system, once the students get used to it, um, really empowers them to kind of like take some risks early on, try it out, just throw it up against the wall and see if it sticks. And if not, then try try again, learning from it. And then if that didn't work, then come into office hours before that final uh, final shot at it. And so it it, it gives them the freedom that I think they need, even in the, the set prescripted standards that we've listed out. Not everyone passes every semester, but usually by the end, we've, we've got people who have, have really mastered the, the content because they've, they've been held to a higher standard because they only get credit if they get it basically A-worthy, but they get a few shots to do it. And so it's a mixture of kind of generosity and, and high standards. Chris stands behind the importance of empowering students and demonstrating generosity in our methods of assessment. For others, high standards automatically imply harder classes with less support from teachers, but that's not necessarily the case. Done well, the empowering approach will get more students meeting those standards. Now, now that won't work if, if your view is it just needs to be really hard, and the harder the better, or the few students that are passing, the, the better teaching is going on. I, I think that's crap. Setting appropriate standards becomes an important issue when dealing with fundamental courses like the first-year composition that I teach and the music theory courses Chris teaches. There's an expectation from colleagues, administration, or other institutions that a fundamentals course will lead to, well, a fundamental skill set or knowledge base. I teach as part of a course sequence, so each semester, you know, I'm passing students on to a colleague with the expectation that they're able to do X, Y, and Z so that they can build on that in the next semester in the sequence. I had some students who uh, made a passing grade in Theory 1 who I knew were not ready for Theory 2, that at at best they were going to withdraw. If they stuck it out to the end of the term, there was a really low chance of them passing. One, because they hadn't mastered the the most difficult concepts from the first semester, which were the foundations for what we were doing in the next semester. And and two, just because I saw kind of throughout the term, they, they got kind of worse and worse and worse in terms of how they were doing on, on the standard assignments and tests and things. And I also had a couple students who were amazingly intelligent, performed very well on the big projects and tests, but just didn't turn in homework um, and had a lot of absences. So they, you know, uh, they failed. <laughs> and I, I actually, uh, and, and so I went to my department chair, ha- having done some research into other kinds of assessment systems that might better reflect the student. You know, I, I said that the final grade should really represent what do you know at the end and are you ready to go on? 
Chris argues that we can maintain high standards and let students know we're expecting a lot, but keep them motivated through generosity and empowerment. Think outside academia for a minute and consider the popularity of private music lessons. We have this whole, you know, actually well-paying industry of pedagogy out there in, in music. In this setup, students go to meet with a tutor for an hour or so. The lessons are usually in the tutor's home, not at an institution. There are no tests, no exams, no grades. And that people can make a full-time living off of uh, and, and is built on intrinsic motivation. And, and it is, it's quite successful in a lot of ways. And um, so this, this idea that we need grades, that we need carrots and sticks in order to help students, I think is pretty erroneous. There may be periodic performances, but really the tutor and student are worried about learning rather than standards. That difference between learning and standards is also important to Asao Anoy, who we've heard from before. My name is Asao Anoy. I'm associate professor at the University of Washington Tacoma, where I'm also the director of university writing. His courses emphasize the value of labor and compassion among his students, and he is familiar with a common question from critics. Yeah, where are your standards? Asao has chosen to set academic labor as his standard to assess, which he does using a grading contract. The use of a labor-based contract allows for the same kind of risk and empowerment we just discussed. In Asao's classes, students do the work that's expected of them under the assumption that it will pay off in the end. I think that's a really good way to to capture the spirit of the contract and getting at the practices, right? The, the process that we're trying to ask students to be mindful of. If we care about, if students want to be graded, because um, of course, they probably don't want to be graded, but if they, they know they have to get a grade, and if they know that the, be, the best way to, to calculate that grade is by their effort, I call effort labor. I call it labor because there are um, at least three aspects to labor that I ask students to reflect upon every week in those labor and mindfulness journals. What I try to do is I ask them to think about their duration, how much, how much time they're, they're spending, and so they keep track of that every week. In any labor that's, that has to do, do with our class, they keep track of it. I also want them to think about the quality of the labor. How engaged were they? Um, how deeply are they working? Um, are, is their minds on something else? It's things like that, those things, um, duration and engagement and, um, and intensity. Those, that's the third quality. And how intense is your labor? Sometimes we can think about labor, I think, in a very good way as painful. And intensity can often be the amount of pain <laughs> or the amount of focus and concentration. How exhausted do we feel when we are finished? Everybody, because if we believe what Burke has to say about us being symbol using, symbol misusing animals, that we all care and, and love language and that we all care and love thinking and we all care and love making use of symbols. And if that's the case, then I think we can all be engaged in that act and, the, and that, that situation. And when you read or when you write, that is what you are doing, manipulating symbols, making sense of them and so forth. And so it's just we're not, I think most, many students aren't accustomed to thinking about it that way. There's an awful lot of trust involved in assessing student performance through their effort. We assume things are going to work and that students will, through their labor, end up gaining value from our courses. Sometimes that may not happen as intended. It's a little lesson in self-compassion. Um, because we need to be, we need to love ourselves first before we can love other people. And we need to be compassionate to ourselves. And sometimes compassionate, being compassionate to ourselves means that we understand our limitations and work through them. 
And sometimes self-compassion also means a student goes through an entire semester or quarter and gets to the end and says, I don't know if this class gave me much. And I say to that student, it's not time for you yet. Okay, it's not time for you yet. This is just the wrong time in your life, perhaps, um, to, to, to get whatever lessons we were trying to give. That doesn't mean you did anything wrong. So that's the beauty of the contract, right? That if we focus our attention on the labor and you did the labor and yet you still didn't feel like you got much out of it, that's okay. We'll let that labor steep in your pot for a while and see if, if it produces anything down the road. To hear more about how we can compassionately assess our students, I talked with Lee scalarup Bassett. I'm Lee scalarup Bassett. I am a faculty instructional consultant at the Center for the Enhancement of Learning and Teaching at the University of Kentucky. And asked for her thoughts about grading. When we talk about assessing students, I want to ask about like the emotional perspective of the teacher. What emotional stance should we hold or what emotion should be overriding our efforts as we assess our students? Uh, empathy. And that can be really, really difficult. I mean, we have trouble being empathetic. And I mean, we, not just teachers, but like empathy is really hard uh, generally. Mm -hmm. And I'm also, I look at it as well, and I've started to do this as a, as a place of discovery, hmm. right? Where it is about discovering what the students have retained, what the students have to say, and what the students have have discovered themselves. Mm -hmm. So I try to, as much as possible, and this took a long time and it's still not very good at it, but what I try to do is put aside what I think they should be doing mm -hmm. and open it up to, well, what have they done? We have to be really clear about what we expect of our students, whether that's to produce certain things, to demonstrate a certain type of thinking, or even just to struggle their way through new material. Lee has worked with a lot of peer-driven learning, having students evaluate one another's performance in class based on standards that they help set. Peer-driven learning had a lot to do with that, too, because I said, well, you're going to do, you know, as long as you show me that you have engaged with these ideas and read these essays or, you know, a selection of your choosing, you know, then you've met the learning outcomes for this particular project. Mm -hmm. But how you communicate that to us is something completely up to you. And so then I have no expectations. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to do what they do. And what they do when you allow them that sort of space is absolutely astonishing. But getting rid of our expectations for students' final products can be unusually jarring for students. I had one such frustrating and jarring experience during my doctoral coursework at the University of Central Florida. One of my professors took a page from Greg Ulmer's playbook and gave us very specific procedural instructions on exactly how we should think through a concept, but then gave us no guidance on what the finished product should look like. A couple of classes that I was in were taught by an instructor who was very much the you do what makes sense to you and you create what comes naturally from the thinking that you've been doing yeah. and you'll be okay. And it drove me up a wall. I was I was so infuriatingly frustrated with the way this man ran his class. I was like, I cannot handle this. Um, I eventually summed it up as in most of my classes, the instructor would say, here's the end goal. Now you figure out how to get there. But in this class, it was, no, here's the process. Now you figure out what the end goal is going to look like. Mm -hmm. And by flipping it around that way, I just, I lost my head because I had yeah. never had a class like that and it drove me up just bonkers. But then I had a moment of clarity toward the end of the second course I had with this instructor, and it was, oh, my God, that's the way I teach. 
<laughs> and I realized that I would drive myself mad if I were my own teacher. Yeah. Because I love doing that as an instructor. And I really do genuinely believe that if students just go through the right motions, whatever they create is going to be great because it will represent what they've thought and what they've done. Yeah. And I don't care what it looks like because it's it's them. It's it's not for me. It's for them. Yeah. And and I recognize that the the amount of trust that demands of the student is almost incalculable. Yeah. Because the system has been created and designed such that they all expect to have demands set on them. Yeah. For the outcome, not the thinking. Yeah. And it just it it hurt my head to realize that I was my own worst nightmare kind of thing. <laughs> It's good for thee, but not for me. Right. <laughs> but that did allow for an awful lot of empathy. I, I was able to look at my students in class now and go, oh, you poor things. I know what I'm putting you through. It is hell. Yeah. I've been there. Yeah. The move to let go of expectations for student products has to be balanced with the institutional expectations of student learning outcomes. When we assess students, we need to be very clear on exactly what it is we're trying to measure. What are, what are our learning outcomes? I think maybe sometimes the learning outcomes that we have um, set forward for freshman composition perhaps are a little unreasonable. They're, they're, they're good goals. Like they will be ready to read and write college level essays, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know if one, if 15 weeks can do that, but I mean, if we're, if we're trying to move them towards it, move them from, from a point of high school closer towards it, then I think that we can show, well, you know, we can show improvement. We can show um, that students, you know, habits of mind are also a really big deal, right? They might not be mm -hmm. really well practiced in it, but they perhaps they, they have better habits of mind. Knowing how to transfer those skills into their various course, other courses that they're taking throughout, you know. And, and so it's this question of what are we measuring, mm -hmm. right? What are those learning outcomes that have been imposed on us? Mm -hmm. Can we push back on those? Can we develop more reasonable learning outcomes? And then how do we assess those learning outcomes in a way that is persuasive? We also need to be persuasive with our students, and that involves pushing against two common challenges. Our students want to know what it takes to get an A, and our colleagues want to know, like Asao said, where our standards are. Contract grading can help us address both of those questions, even for those of us who teach composition. When deciding what to assess... Particularly contract grading takes a lot of it off of the table because they know at least if they do, and so I'll have sort of a acceptable, unacceptable, mm -hmm. right? So we have a line. And also you're allowed to revise as much as possible to get it up to that acceptable level. And if you get a certain number of acceptables and, and fulfill the requirements that we often negotiate or discuss in great detail, then you know that you'll get your A. Mm -hmm. Right. So you just take that off the table right from the beginning. Which leaves us with standards and how we know what our students have done in our classes. What I try to communicate with my students, and it's one of the reasons why I put in contract grading, one of the reasons why I also have the students do a lot of self-reflection. Mm -hmm. and, and it's fortunate that you can do that in a class like freshman writing. Mm -hmm. Well, what do you think you deserve? What do you think, you know, where do you think you are? What do you think you've learned? Um, and get them to really reflect on that process a lot more and, and build in that they have these things that they have to do, right? And I'm always very careful to make sure as well that I'm saying, and this is why you have to do them, or this is why we are going to do them, and this is what we should be striving to get from this. So far, we've talked about assessing generously with compassion and through reflection and peer evaluation. That sounds like it could go very, very wrong, and there's some real risk of that. 
you know, even after doing it for four years, I still felt like really anxious Mm -hmm. during those first few weeks. Mm -hmm. And then it came back about two weeks before the students were about to present and I hadn't really seen them all semester and didn't know what they were doing. And every time it was like, this time it's going to fail. It's going to be terrible this time. I'm about to watch everything crash and burn. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go just call them all back and say, forget it. Just write write a traditional essay. (laughs) Just do a five paragraph essay because we're all good. (laughs) Yeah. We're all just fine. I'm just, I can't take this anymore. Um, But in all seriousness, the risk is real, and we cannot shy away from it. We are asking our students to risk what they hold dear, their grades, to see what they can learn. We must also risk what we value, predictability, to focus on learning. But here's the safety net. Our goal is not perfection. In any of the courses, I think perfection is probably just a... It's a pipe dream, really, and an mm-hmm. unrealistic one. We're, we're basically setting up for setting the students up and ourselves up as educators for failure mm-hmm. if that is going to be our standard. So, okay, um, I'm going to push back, be devil's advocate. What yeah. should our standard be? If we're not aiming for perfection, what should we aim for? I think that there's that there, we, we can talk about mastery, and mastery doesn't necessarily mean perfection, mm-hmm. right? And I think the I think the bar for mastery was actually in a workshop where we were talking about these uh, very things. I was getting a lot of pushback, um, where you know what we expect from a 100 student in any subject. Uh, is very different than what we expect from a 400-level student mm-hmm. or a graduate student. Mm-hmm. And so the bar, I think, moves. You know, mastery is what we're aiming for in those 400-level courses towards the end. But as we move through that, in the 100 levels, we're looking to assess their basic understanding of it, their basic implementation of the skills. Mm-hmm. Even if they can recognize, even if they haven't mastered the skills, then... Um, and, you know, do they at least have an understanding of, well, if I was better at this, I could do this and this is where I would use mm-hmm. it. But, uh, you know, I'm not good at it yet, mm-hmm. you know, but at least I understand that this is a place where I would use that particular skill or this particular approach or, or theory or something like that. But what does this look like in practice? How can students try something, recognize something, fail at something and still be successful? Let's hear one more time from Lee. This is a story, I think I've blogged about it, um, but it's a story I always, always, always tell my students, and I'll forever be grateful for this particular student for this. It was in the peer-driven learning class, and I encourage them to work collaboratively, but if they really feel like they want to work by themselves and the rest of the class agrees, then they're allowed to work by themselves. So this Mm -hmm. particular student... She decided to work by herself, and and it was something that I sort of was excited about because she she was very connected online as well, Mm -hmm. right? She had an online community, Mm -hmm. and so she's like, I want to work by myself, but I want to work with my online community. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, okay, that's great. And so she picked the subject of War and Peace, the the textbook that we were required to use. I really quite liked it, Um, but uh, it was divided up sort of thematically. And so she chose War and Peace, and she, she ran the idea past me. I said, that's great. Go and do it. And then she comes in for a presentation day, or the share day, right? And, and she comes in, and she goes, okay, so my idea was to create this website mm-hmm. where I give the, the things about War and Peace based on what I've read in the book and the essays and these various definitions, and then I wanted to crowdsource, right? Have these definitions change, have our concepts changed mm-hmm. using my social network. Mm -hmm. 
ask them a question and say, could you fill this out? How would you find war? How would you define peace? And then do some things with that. Well, like one person responded. Mm. Right. So she was like, and nobody would respond. And so, you know, and so she showed the one response and she showed what she had set up and and sort of storyboarded what she was going to do. But she said, I couldn't do it anymore. So I had to come up with something different. So then I came up with, I was going to create sort of slogans and, and posters. So like they would be, now we would call them memes, but we mm-hmm. weren't quite in memeville mm-hmm. yet at that point. So she's like, I was going to create these um, posters uh, reflecting various philosophers and thinkers view on war and peace. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so a really complex interpretive mode. Mm-hmm. Right. And so she'd come up with these ideas and then she was like, but then I found out that I was terrible designer (laughs) and they were all ugly and I hated them all. And she showed them, (laughs) she Mm -hmm. showed them that she was like, you know, this was my idea and this was the best I could do. Right. And so she, she, you know, again, very complex process and her thinking was good and she had the right ideas. She just couldn't execute them quite right. Mm -hmm. Um, And then she had a third idea and I don't even remember what that third idea is because she was never able to execute because as she said, I ran out of time. (laughs) Right. Um, So her entire 50 minute and, you know, and then we had a question answer period. Well, why this or why didn't you think this worked or how would you have um, done this? Had it worked or, you know, um, she also sort of admitted, she's like, I wish I had had help. Like, she wished she hadn't done it by herself. She's like, because mm-hmm. maybe if I'd been in a group with people, and that's, you know, a good thing, too. Not one of the, the stated learning outcomes, but certainly uh, uh, I thought. And, and you know, and, I, and I, at the end of it, I really did stop them. And, and I said, okay, everyone, now I want you to look at this. And I said, in a normal class, right? And, and she was mm-hmm. terrified. She really was. Mm-hmm. She's like, she just sort of said, I'm going to do this and see what happens. Yep. And, and I said, you know, um, and I asked, I said, did she meet the learning outcomes? And there was like, yeah, she did a lot of work and, and it was, you know, she clearly thought about it and, and she was able to explain it to us and articulate it. And she clearly had done the readings and thought about them and how they were related. And I said, yeah, but in a traditional sort of setup, what would this have been? And they're like, well, she didn't, you know, she didn't have the, the, the product mm-hmm. as, as mm-hmm. so she probably would. And I said, yeah, but she's going to get an A, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, she should totally get an A. Um, and I said, you got your A, you know, uh, and I, this was a more, or, or acceptable at this point. It wasn't really accept. We were at the acceptable, unacceptable line. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. this is totally acceptable. And I said, if we were doing a traditional grade, I would totally give this an A, um, you know, um, even though this was basically all about failure, Mm -hmm. right? But it was productive failure and you learned from it and you incorporated it. And I have no doubt that your third idea, and again, to this day, I wish I'd remembered what it was, it was <laughs> um, but it was almost an afterthought, right? Like she'd spent mm-hmm. so much time on the other two. And then she said, and then I had this other great idea and I ran out of time and now I'm done, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was just, it was this, and it's this really wonderful example that I give over and over and over again now in my classes um, where I said that, you know, we have to rethink how we how we define failure. What is a failure? What does it mean? Mm-hmm. Um, again, in terms of what we want the learning, what we want students to accomplish through doing this particular project assignment exercise. Mm-hmm. 
is it mastery? How do we express mastery? And, and again, this was a class that it, was, it wasn't a poster design class. It wasn't a social media class. And mm-hmm. so, you know, she showed that she had deepened her understanding of these texts and worked really hard, if not harder than most of the other students in the class, mm-hmm. on trying to find ways to interpret and mm-hmm. communicate her understandings. Mm -hmm. Um, through really imperfect ways. And that's what communication is. It's always imperfect. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just, I love that example. um, And I use it over and over and over again because I think it just shows perhaps a lot of the times where we can go very, very wrong in assessment in punishing Mm -hmm. those students who perhaps are the most creative and and Mm -hmm. audacious. Maybe not creative, Mm -hmm. but audacious in what they try to accomplish and how they try to, to, to communicate their learning. You've been tuned to Hybrid Pod, a production of Hybrid Pedagogy, Inc. Just because the show is over doesn't mean the conversation ends. Everyone who contributed to this episode is available through Twitter, and so is the show itself. So along those lines, at Hybrid Pod and at Chris underscore friend would like to thank at Chris Schaffer, that's Chris with a K, S-H-A-F-F-E-R, at Asao Anoy, that's A-S-A-O, I-N-O-U-E and at Ready Writing that's Lee for adding their voices to today's show you can subscribe to HybridPod in iTunes or Stitcher but the best place to go is our home on the web find us at hybridpod.audio where you can hear all our episodes and add to the conversation online that's hybridpod.audio thanks for listening